at you from my brand new apartment. Woohoo. And also Taylor, who is still living in her nice house. Yep, just the same regular one. It's good, though. It's Yeah, it's a good one. I'm fond of it. Anyways. This is Ghost Emoji. Yeah. And today we're talking about the Rainbow Valley. Yeah. It's got such a cheerful name for what it actually is. Let's get into it. Let's just let's just get up to our waist deep in it. Um so every year hundreds of people pay thousands of dollars for the privilege of getting to climb Mount Everest, even though approximately 240 climbers have died trying to make the summit and most of them are still up there. In fact, there's a section of the mountain called Rainbow Valley where dozens of bodies are visible due to their brightly colored climbing jackets. Yep. I don't remember the first time I heard about this, but I just remember being really creeped out by it because, I mean, it makes perfect sense, like, that it's really difficult that once you, you pass away, you you can't get people off of, off of the mountain, but just the sheer number and the fact that they stay so well preserved and that it's kind of just a normal thing like I'm sure people still get you know upset by it when they see it when they're up there but it's just so hard for me to wrap my brain around and Rainbow Valley (laughs) what a name what the fuck So, the journey to the top of Everest is signposted by the marks of the dead. The the vast majority lie within the death zone, which is the final 400 meters to the top. Here, temperatures can dip to very low levels, resulting in frostbite of any body part exposed to the air. That's that's rough. Yeah, that's... I mean, I'm sure that, like, they're all bundled up, and sometimes I've, like, I've heard about people... Even if it's covered up, like, if something gets wet or they just have been out in the cold too long up there, they'll start to get frostbite on, like, their their toes or their fingers, even if they're in gloves. That's... <laughs> mm-hmm. Since temperatures are so low, snow is well frozen in certain areas, and death or injury by slipping and falling can occur. High winds at these altitudes on Everest are also a potential threat to climbers. Uh, Another significant threat to climbers is low atmospheric pressure. The atmospheric pressure at the top of Everest is about a third of sea level pressure, resulting in only about a third as much oxygen to breathe. Um, See, so the death zone is so treacherous that it takes most climbers up to 12 hours to walk the distance of 1.72 kilometers, which is like a little over a mile um, from the south call to the summit. A sea level dweller exposed to the atmospheric conditions at the altitude above 8,500 meters without acclimatization would likely lose consciousness within two to three minutes due to like lack of oxygen. That's why a lot of times like they'll come up to these like base camps and there's several of them up and down the mountain and they'll stay there for quite a while just to kind of get used to that oxygen level and then continue going. And even then, once you get to the top, a lot of times, you know, you have to take oxygen with you to supplement it because, like, you just become exhausted. And part of that, I guess, must 
also factor into some of these people, like, they just, they just stop. Like, people just kind of sit down to rest and never get back up. Like, their brain can't process that they're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to die if I stay here. But they're just like, I'm too tired. I have to just sit for a second. And then they never get up. I know. Well, that's why so many of them die in this area. And because it's so difficult just to to walk, that's why a lot of the people who perish in the death zone, um, they can't be retrieved because, you know, you could barely walk. And so bringing back down a body is a huge task. Like, and on top of that, a lot of times, like, people won't fund or undertake expeditions expressly for the the purpose of retrieving bodies um and those who have i mean sadly a lot of times will end up dying you know especially like if they fell or were in like a strange spot you know it's really dangerous to get there normally but in that death zone it's it's almost impossible and so people just just leave them there and and they just kind of become part of the landscape Mm-hmm. I think all told, um, there's been more than 4,000 people um, have tried to climb Everest's 8,848 meters since it was first attempted in 1905. Um, according to the Himalayan database, death rates on the mountain are they're going down um, to below 5%. I'm guessing that's 5% of the people who try it, thanks to the advent of modern mountain gear. Um but I feel like that's kind of played down by the fact that, you know, like with the, the um, what was it, the uh, earthquake that they had a few years ago and stuff like that. So it'll, it'll go a while where they'll have, you know, just the average number of people dying and then something like that or like the, uh, the 1996 um, blizzard and stuff like that. Just small singular events that will take out, you know, several people in a single day. We got a lot of information from uh, a BBC article called Death in the Clouds, the Problem with Everest 2000, or 2000 um, Death in the Clouds, the Problem with Everest 200 plus bodies. Um, it's back from 2015 and it's by Rachel Neuer. The article, it's, it's not super long, but it's really well done. We pulled a lot of the information in here from it and it was just a, a good kind of, they, they looked more at why people try this in the first place. I mean, we, I guess, are kind of more focused on, on these bodies and how they get there and, and how people are okay with just leaving them. But they did a, a pretty decent job. I still don't get it, but just kind of explaining, like, why someone, like, knowing that it's as dangerous as it is would still attempt to, to do this as often as people do. So... Uh, this is a quote from Christopher Kays, uh, chair and professor of management at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and he says, People are somehow able to walk by these bodies and continue climbing by rationalizing to themselves that whatever happened to this person will not happen to me. Um, some, however, are not able to continue climbing. In 2010, Geert van Herk, a amateur climber from Belgium was making his way up Everest's north side when he came across a colored mass on the ground. 
Realizing it was a climber, Van Hurt quickly approached, eager to offer any help he could. That was when he saw the bag. Someone had placed a plastic bag over the man's face to prevent birds from pecking out his eyes. It just didn't feel right to climb any further and celebrate at the summit, Van Herc says. I think maybe I was seeing myself lying there. He would almost certainly have summited, but returned to camp, shaken and upset. Um, That would be me. Yeah. His decision to turn back, however, is rare. Hundreds of climbers have passed corpses en route to their summit, often without knowing who they are. Even the identified... Even the identity of Green Boots, one of Rainbow Valley's most famous residents, is not 100% confirmed. It's widely agreed that he's uh, Sewing Paljor, a member of the first Indian team to reach the summit of Mount Everest in the North Coal. Um, Paljor was one among three Indians who died on the mountain during the 1996 Mount Everest disaster. However, almost immediately after Paljor died, uncertainty has surrounded his remains. Some think the body is more likely to be his climbing partner, Dorje Morup, but for whatever reason, Paljor's identity has largely stuck, even if most climbers today know the remains only as Green Boots, and the place where he rests as Green Boots Cave. Um, Which I thought was really that, sad. I didn't that put is. it in here, but there were like had a quote from his brother talking about like you know sometimes they don't realize this like you know if it's something that's painful for them they probably don't go looking for like famous people you know who died on Everest and you know just him talking about the first time he saw you know a photo of what's supposed to be like his brother's body and how it's like a marker that people use you know. Even if their intention isn't to be, like, disrespectful, they're like, you know, that's my brother up there. And I think he said that, like, his mother is older and, like, doesn't use the internet and stuff like that. So he's like, I'm not going to tell her. And he's like, you know, it's very upsetting to the people in our family who do know. (laughs) And the fact that most people just, it's Green Boots Cave. Like, I mean, I guess I, I can get that they don't know his name, but it's just really sad, like... When you get to that point and you're so interested in surviving that literal dead bodies around you just become place markers. <laughs> I don't know. Just, I mean, the type of person who wants to climb a mountain, I don't understand. And then the type of person who can continue to climb a mountain when there's dead bodies literally frozen around you of people who attempted the same thing that you're trying to do is just like... That shit blows my mind. I'm like, either you're having to, like, disassociate and, like, pretend it's not happening until it's over, which is, I mean, a, a personal motto that I believe in. But, I mean, with that lack like, of oxygen, maybe it's a little easier than we think. I guess. But I just, I don't know. It's just really bizarre. That enclave, located at about 8,500 meters high and sheltered from the wind, is a popular resting point for climbers on their way back from the summit, who may sit down there to catch their breath or have a snack. It's pretty grisly that they named that cave after him, says amateur mountaineer Bill Burke, the only person to have climbed the highest mountain on every continent after age 60. It's really become a landmark on the north side. I just, like... My fear is that people would, like, take pictures or something, like, next to the body being, like, an asshole, and that would piss me off if, like, I had a, a like, relative up there. From what? I mean, you know? I, I didn't go looking for a lot of photos. I mean, despite doing research on it, I tried to just find articles or mm-hmm. stuff like that. I didn't really want to look for them. But 
in the ones that I would see posted in articles and stuff like that, it seems like it's a lot of just the same photo circulating around. Maybe because, like, at that point, since it is so close and they have to preserve energy, I would hope that even if they are, like, a dick on the inside, that they would keep that dick inside and not use, like, the last of their oxygen to be like, look, I'm gonna take a selfie with green boots. Hey, guys. I hope that they don't do that. And if they That's... do, they'd probably just die anyway. <coughs> well, not, not. I guess it, that doesn't serve them right. That's rude. But, <laughs> <laughs> like, don't do that. Everyone just, just be be respectful. Um, see, back in 2006, uh, the cave and green boots earned even more infamous renown when a British climber named David Sharp was discovered huddled inside on the brink of death. Um, the story was widely circulated by the media, which claimed that some 40 passer, or climbers passed by Sharp, who died later that day without offering aid. Or they said that the climbers passed by him without offering aid. Um, in fact, most climbers did not notice Sharp, or they assumed that he was simply resting. I mean, everyone's so bundled up, I think it could be hard to tell. And they make it seem, like, so dire, like, to not waste your energy to doing, like, extraneous things. So even just, like, walking a little bit out of the path to be like, hey, dude, are you okay? Okay, you are? All right. I guess I'll just uh, stay out of your business. Bye. What the hell? I know. It's just, I don't get it. Um, other accused, Others accused of ignoring his plight were not informed until it was much too late to help. By the time Lebanese climber Maxine Chaya saw him and tried to render aid, it was too late. Um, a Sherpa, which I felt bad they didn't name the Sherpa, but I couldn't find it, um, did what he could as well, putting an oxygen mask on Sharp, who revived enough to tell the Sherpa his name. Um, his body was buried under rocks as a makeshift mountain burial at the request of his parents. Um, but Paljor, who is green boots, um, the moniker was further solidified by the incident. And he remained in the cave. They came and they took uh, David Sharp away. But they were, they just made a, not excuses, but there was just a lot of talk about how they were like, it's kind of, you know, not to be like gross or disrespectful, but they're like a lot of these bodies, once, you know, someone passes away, they literally like start to just become like part of the mountain. Like if you want to remove them, you have to dig out like, however many pounds of, like, ice and snow around them because they just freeze solid. Yeah. And so they're like, it's just, it's too difficult. Like, we don't know what to do. But I felt bad that, I guess maybe at that point, Paljor had been there for 10 years, so maybe it was just easier to remove uh, David Sharp. Because they were like, if you're going to do it, like, you need to do it, like, right when they die because after that, it's just too difficult. Um, let's see. And I kind of just cherry-picked some of, of the more well-known ones because, like I said, there's there's tons of them. And unfortunately, a lot of them, like, they have trouble identifying because it could have been someone who fell from a great distance and then they see them. And at that point, like, they've, you know, either become skeletal or their face is, like, buried in the snow or whatever. And so it's just assumed that they're dead. But for for so many people... And so many bodies. I think that's kind of what creeped me out about it was that there's supposedly, you know, these, all of these, you know, cadavers up on the side of the building with these big bright coats. But you can only find so many stories about who they are. 
because it seems like a lot of people don't know who they are. They are just like, that's pink coat, you know, that's, you know, silver oxygen tank. The fuck? I know. This one, there's a longer uh, section on this one in the Death in the Clouds article that was really sad, but but really good. It kind of touched on kind of like families and like, you know, the people who are left behind and, you know, trying to kind of reckon with that. Um see, back on May 22nd, 1998, Francis DiStefano Arset- Arsentiev um, reached her goal and made Everest history. Um, but on her descent from the peak, which I thought was really sad. So basically she made it. And then on her way back down, something went wrong. And she and her husband, Sergei, were forced to spend the night in the death zone um, and became separated uh, that morning. Um, Sergei was far ahead of her on the descent. And they think he came back looking for her, like either to provide oxygen or maybe even despite his own oxygen level running low. Um, But... He, I think, hasn't actually ever been uh, recovered um, because he fell to his death when trying to reach her. Um, she was on like a really steep kind of stiff, uh, steep cliff slope. Um, she fell prey to snow blindness and um, she was laying there. She was calling out for help. And even though it was really difficult, um, a couple passing by, Ian Woodall and Kathy O'Dowd, um, were able to reach her. But they really couldn't do much besides, like, I think they stayed with her for about an hour. They gave her some oxygen. um, And then it got to the point where they were like, if we stay, we will also, you know, die. And so they went back down to the base camp to try and call for help. But she she passed away because it was just too cold. Um, And she had, uh, she became known as Sleeping Beauty, which even though the moniker itself might sound kind of sweet, it's still just, you know, it's just like, this is someone's mom, someone's, you know, wife, like just a person separate from her, her relationships to the men around her. But, you know, someone who's just kind of gets reduced down to, to this little name, but apparently like leaving her there and, and having all that happen was difficult on this couple, and they actually were able to return eight years later. And their plan was to give her a rock burial, um, and it actually, I think, took them two tries to dig her body out of the snow. Like, they kind of went back to where they thought she was, which I guess at that point, I mean, maybe during certain times of the year, the bodies aren't as visible if they're underneath the snow already. Um, but they were able to dig her out, but I guess just because of the location on the mountain, they were like, all right, the rock grave idea is no longer an option. Um, but they did have enough rope to kind of like lower her body over the mountain's edge. Um, I couldn't tell from the wording, like if they literally just kind of like lowered her off and then like tied off the ropes or if they released her. Um, they said that after remaining her, after wrapping her remains in an American flag and saying a few words, they sent her on her way likely to the same place where Sergei lies. So I'm like, did they just let her go or or what? Which I read is a lot of times what they do. Like if they can reach a body, you know, they'll either cover it with rocks or they will kind of just nudge it off the mountain. Which, you know, it's one of those things where like it sounds really disrespectful to us, but is that honestly, you know, is that worse than just being left out in the open for people to see you and use you as a signpost? Well, I mean, they... 
they tried to put her like where she would lie with her husband, which I think is sweet. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, you know, the best, but it's it's they were trying to give her whatever burial they could up at this in, insane like height. You know well, yeah, when I mean? you think about how expensive it probably was to do another expedition mm-hmm. and go back up there and like the chance and that it's they dangerous. Could die. I mean, yeah. they could die. Um, they said like all together, like once they found her, tried to dig her up. And all that stuff took about five hours. So that's that's not like the whole like, you know, getting there and getting back. That's just how long it took just to to push her off the mountain. Kathy Woodall said it was the hardest thing I've ever done, much harder than going to the summit. But I felt strongly enough about it to get off my backside and do something about it. Um, and here's where there was a lot of stuff about uh, about the woman's son but Francis's son, and Francis is the, the lady um, who died on the mountain, but um, her son Paul, who I think he was like a teenager when she passed away, found out about all this through like the media. And he was initially really upset because he kind of was like, I wish they had told me what they were going to do. Because I think he kind of had that feeling where he was like, you know, that's my mom and they just pushed her off a mountain. You know, but he said that the more time he had to understand it, he was like, it might not be, he said something about how, like, you know, I might be related to her by blood, but they have their own relationship with my mom, you know, that was kind of forged in this, you know, them being there with her when she was dying. And even if it's not a father-son bond, you know, obviously they cared enough, um, and he said, I feel that they had just as much right to move her as we did, and my family honors their effort. I wish they had asked me, I do, but more so I wish I wish to make a connection with them and meet them. Um, hopefully that time will come. That one I just, I felt bad about because, I don't know, that one, and I also, I was glad this article had more information on it because I'd seen her listed in a couple of other, like, well-known Rainbow uh, Valley occupants. And a lot of times they were like, they said that that she was wrapped in an American flag and had like a note from her family or something. And I was like, it seems like her family didn't know what was going on. Like, you know, maybe not like her blood family, but, you know, just. So I, I was glad that he was able to 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 be at peace with it. Because I'm sure that was really difficult, but that he was okay with it. Because there's nothing you can do now. I guess, nope. but but that someone else would care enough about your mom that they're like, I don't want people walking by, calling her Sleeping Beauty, you know, not like really knowing who she was. Yeah, that would bother me because I'd be like, she has a name, like it's I Francis. Don't know. So apparently, what to do with bodies on the mountain depends on a number of factors, including the wishes of the deceased and his or her families, and where the death took place. Um, some make arrangements for their body to be returned to their family if possible. Burke did not discuss those details with his wife, but he did ensure that his body would be delivered to her should the worst happen. It's not something you dwell on, he says. I knew I needed repatriation uh, insurance, so I got it, but I didn't give it a lot of thought. And that's Bill Burke, the I guess the guy who oh. from before. He, there was so much between there. I was like, who's Burke? Yeah, I know. I was like, who the fuck's Burke? But I'll just keep reading. Um, so, oh, sorry. I'm tired. That's okay. Um, so returning a body to a family costs thousands of dollars and requires the efforts of six to eight Sherpas. 
potentially putting those men's lives in danger. Are there any women Sherpas? I'm sure there are. Maybe they just meant like... They're just saying in like a general... Yeah, but they should have said people. Mm-hmm. Um, even picking up a candy wrapper high up on a mountain is a lot of effort because it's totally frozen and you have to dig around it, says Aang. Shiring Sherpa, chairman and founder of the Asian Trekking, a company based in uh, Kathmandu. Or is it just Kathmandu? Kathmandu. Kathmandu and president of the Nepal Mountaineering Association. Um, a dead body that normally weighs 80 kilograms might weigh 150 kilograms when frozen and dug out with the surrounding ice attached. So it like almost doubles. Mm-hmm. So like a 200 pound man would weigh like 400 fucking pounds. Yeah. So it's just, it's, I mean, that candy wrapper thing. I was like, are they exaggerating or is it literally just like, which speaking of candy wrappers and stuff, like I didn't write anything about it. In, in any of the stuff I found, but there's a ton of garbage up there. These people who climb are just leaving, like, literally their shit and their other shit, like, all over the mountain. Gross. And these people have to go up and, like, try and clean that so it doesn't get, like, carried away. Ugh. Um, so for all of the 1980s and most of the 1990s, the skeletal remains of climber Hanalor Schmatz uh, sat within sight of any climber on the southern route, leaning against her backpack with her eyes wide open and hair blowing in the gale force winds. Nepalese police inspector Yogendra Bahadur Tapa and Sherpa guide Ang Dorje fell to their deaths in 1984 while trying to recover her body. Even in the late 1990s, high winter winds finally blew her remains over the Kangsheng face. Um, typically, though, Mountaineers who die on a mountain wish to remain there, a tradition co-opted from seafarers more than a century ago. Um, But when we have 500 people stepping over a body every year, that's no longer acceptable, says Jenkins, who had to navigate four bodies when he was last on Everest. That's disgraceful. When a body does become a well-photographed fixture on the mountain, families are often the ones who suffer most. One day you're waving goodbye at the airport and the next is, oh, dad's called Green Boots and they're walking past him, says Greg Child, a mountaineer and author um, in Utah. And this part, they, um, which I didn't know because I knew a little bit about Green Boots before I started, you know, reading up on this and then luckily found out what his real name is so I could stop calling him Green Boots, which I feel bad every time we've had to say it (laughs) for the podcast. I'm like, he has a name. It's not Green Boots. But apparently in May 2014, adventurer Noel Hanna was surprised to find not only that Green Boots' cave was devoid of its familiar resident, but also that many of the bodies on the north side seemed to have vanished. Hanna estimates that previously up to 10 bodies were visible on the push to the summit, but in 2014 he only counted two or three. Um, it would be 94, I would be 95% certain that Paljor had been uh, moved or covered with stones, Hannah says. Um, in keeping with Everest tradition, however, the circumstances surrounding the removal of the remains are not entirely clear. Hannah suspects that it could have been the Chinese-Tibetan Mountaineering Association and the Chinese Mountaineering Association, which manage Everest's north side. Um, five weeks prior to undertaking his climb, he has suggested to, uh, had suggested to officials at a dinner that they move the bodies. Apparently no one had pointed out, or nobody had pointed out, uh, apparently nobody had pointed that out to the person in charge before, he says. So 
I guess there's no solid proof that these are the people that actually moved some of the bodies if they were able, but I was just like, really, no one's ever just gone up to them and been like, there's a lot of people who have died just kind of hanging out on the path and people have to climb around them. Could we maybe, you know, give them some kind of mountainside burial? <laughs> Get them out of the way. Just something so their bodies aren't constantly being, like, walked over or used as markers, like they're objects rather than people who died. Mm-hmm. So that's why I, I didn't know that. I, I assumed that he was still there. But I guess as of May 2014, um, Pal is no longer there, along with a couple other um, people who died on the mountain. Their bodies have been removed, so. I mean, I'm glad that whatever happened to their bodies, like, hopefully they're at rest now and they're not being used as, like, an object. Yeah, because this one, like, I know it. it's not, like, a real haunting or or anything, but part of it that just kind of, you know, bothered me and always creeped me out was just how usually we impart this kind of, like, mysteriousness to, to bodies and death, but then in the, apparently in certain kinds of situations, it's, you know, once you're dead, they kind of go full tilt on the whole, like, well, you're, but you're, you're not your body. <laughs> you're gone. Now you're just a lump of snow on the side of the mountain. And, and that just seems kind of sad to me, unless they're, they're cool with it. I mean, I know, is it, is it Ryan? Does he just want to go wander off into a forest or does he want to be left on the side of a mountain to get eaten up by birds? He wanted to um, wander into a forest and die. Oh. Mm-hmm. I was like, you you can't do that. I'm sorry. I mean, if I'm already dead, it's fine, but. But you got to stick around. You got to, you got to be, be there. You can't just pick and be like, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. It's like Grizzly Adams, just wander away. What a goob. Mm-hmm. But that's like, I, I don't want to say, I know like some some burial rites and stuff like that are different. Like, I can't remember if it's in Tibet, the one where like when people pass away, they basically just leave them out for like raptors to come and like eat and kind of like sky burial, like just return them to the sky, which if that's what they want, then, you know, I'm totally fine with that. I just, I don't know. Rainbow Valley just, just spooks me out when it's just completely you know, go from being a a person to just being a a place marker in a ski jacket. So to close out, and this is just pulled straight from the the end of that article because I thought it was a a good wrap-up, but um, for years to come, perhaps forever, Everest will no doubt continue to do what it has for decades. Capture the imagination, provide the backdrop for dreams and personal triumphs, and take a few lives in the process. Green, ma- green boots may at last be at rest, but there's no guarantee that his cave will remain empty for long. Oh, that's dark. It is dark, but people still going up there and kicking it. And I don't just mean hanging out. I mean, they're dying. And I guess that's, it's a strange mindset to, to wrap my brain around. Part of the article kind of talked about how, you know, part of it is like a, like a fear confrontation sort of thing. It's like the people who climb aren't necessarily fearless, like they're scared, but they're like, but I'm going to face it and I'm going to conquer it. And like, even though they're in, you know, a lot of pain and they're tired and all this other stuff, they're like, like, I come back physically exhausted, but like mentally at peace finally. And I'm just like, man, I, I mean, I guess I, I enjoy Zumba, 
I, I can do that. I, I don't, if I'm really scared of something, and I, I'm like, if one of my greatest fears is dying, I don't know why I would want to go and do something that might kill me. Because at, at best, I guess I don't die. And I'm like, well, it could have, but it didn't. Worst part is it does kill me and my fears are realized. But then I guess I don't have to worry about them anymore because I'm dead. I don't know. Same like I never want to skydive. I don't want to climb Mount Everest. I want to get a dog. You know, I want to go to museums more. <laughs> I feel like there's so many different ways you can enrich your life that aren't climbing Mount Everest and dying. I just, you know, I'm afraid of making phone calls and going to the doctor. <laughs> I, like, doing that is honestly enough. Like, the thought of even climbing a small mountain makes me want to die. <sighs> so I climbed Enchanted Rock. Like, I like hiking. I like going out, but I, I guess I, I don't want to climb anywhere where, like, my chance of dying is higher than 30%. I don't like hiking. I've I've gone. I didn't like it. I don't ever want to do it again. I'm just not a fan. That's okay. I won't make you hike. Like, show me the pictures you took. I'll be super into it, but I don't want to personally go exercise in the wilderness. I'm... It's hard enough for me to want to exercise in AC. I'll take a picture of me, like, jumping up on top of every hill I've climbed on top of. That sounds good. And I'll just live vicariously <laughs> through you. Here I am on a small mountain. I'm jumping. Yahoo! Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> but that's a, a small a small survey on, on Rainbow Valley. Not necessarily haunted or spooky in, in that regard, but uh, a lot of a lot of death. A lot of a lot of death and mayhem, R.I.P. A lot of sadness. Yeah, a, a small happy note that that a lot of them have have been kind of like returned to the mountain, and and aren't just out for people to see. So, you know, good on good on those people that do that. For people to gawk at, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Taylor. So what? What have you been enjoying this week, or what have you got going on? Um, I actually, I've been listening to, um, it's a band called Sidewalks and Skeletons, and they've got an album called The Void, which I feel like is very on brand. All of their song names are like Slip Away, Drowning, VHS Death, and it's just kind of, I don't know, I'm, I don't even know how I would describe it, but it's just kind of got like a... It's got a really cheesy description for the band. They're like, songs you'd listen to when you walk through a cemetery at 3 a.m. And I'm like, oh, God. I hate that description, but I really enjoy the the music. And it's, uh, it's not, it doesn't have any lyrics or anything. There might be a couple of, like, spoken samples and stuff in it, but it's just kind of fun and spooky to listen to, but not so scary. Like, it's not... Like the It Follows soundtrack or something like that. So you can enjoy it without getting super duper stressed out and constantly looking over your shoulder. And it's on Spotify, so if you're on there, it's uh, it's easy to, to enjoy without having to grab it from YouTube or anything like that. And that's Sidewalks and Skeletons. And the album I'm listening to is The Void, but they've got a couple other ones. What about you? Watched all of um, the fucking end of the world. Oh, when? Or end of the fucking world. I watched the whole thing last week or the week before. 
Dang. I don't know. I blitzed through it in a day and it was really good. Like I thought maybe I was going to hate it because I was like, I don't know where anything good could go (laughs) when it's about a dude who like thinks he's a serial killer and wants to kill this girl and then ends up falling in love with her. But it was actually really great. Um, I'll have to I watch know. it. I, cause I, I had the same kind of feeling. I heard a lot of people talking and saying good things about it, but just from the preview I saw of it, I was kind of in that school of thought where I was like, this seems like maybe it's just going to be edgy and weird. And I don't want something that romanticizes this idea that like serial killers are sexy and fun. And if you just mm-hmm. date them and you're nice enough, you can change them or something like that. But I was like, maybe there's a twist. There's, there's a twist and he, you find out a lot of stuff about him and, and what like made him think, I don't know, it's just, it's really good. Is it long? And I, no, it was like seven or eight episodes and it was just really good and like, it's very beautiful, like the, the way it's filmed and stuff. Mm. So, um, I definitely, I think you'll like it cause I was surprised that I liked it because that whole like premise sort of was gross to me. Mm-hmm. And once you get in there and you start like seeing it, by the end of it, you're just like, man, I wish there was more. Do you think, is there going to be a season two or do you think it's wrapped I up? I doubt it. Oh. I don't think so. That's it, okay. It pretty much, it got tied up. But I like that. I like when something is like, it has a start, a middle, and an end. Yeah. And it doesn't always have to have like six seasons. Kind of like know? Devil May Cry, baby. Exactly. Can't go anywhere just, from that. can't go anywhere from that yeah so i really enjoyed that and um man look at us with our two recommendations without like Mm -hmm. droning on for a thousand years being like um uh, i don't know i mean i watched something this week what did i do i don't know what i did where am i how long have (laughs) i been sitting in this chair (laughs) oh god i'm stuck to it i've morphed into it no, those uh, those are both good. Yeah, I I don't know if I wasn't going out of town this weekend, I could probably binge watch that. But I'll I'll just save it for next week. That'll be something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. You definitely should watch it. Mm-hmm. You also should listen to Limetown I'm while g- you're driving. I'm gonna do that. I've got one episode of My Favorite Murder, one episode of The Adventure Zone Amnesty, and I think that's all I have like saved up. I guess the new Polygon show episode will be out tomorrow morning but that's only however many hours and i'm driving to houston so i will be in the car for four and a half to five both ways so it seems like the perfect amount of time to start and finish a new podcast called limetown 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 <laughs> so but those are all good um do you have anything else uh nope that's pretty much it for me cool then you can find us on iTunes, I'm gonna keep talking this way till we're done. Our iTunes handle is <laughs> at Ghost Emoji Show. We're on. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Be aggressive. I was just, like be, shaking be my head aggressive. while I was doing it. Now I have a headache. That was a bad idea. I was bobbing my head like a little burp. Um, we, uh, we're over on Podbean, but you probably listen to us on iTunes, and that's cool. We're also on Google Play, so follow, like, subscribe, leave reviews, and, uh, I think that's it. 
Mm-hmm. Did I miss anything? No, I think so. Did I get everything? Yeah. Man, I'm getting, I'm getting, not necessarily good at it, but I, I just remember them all, and I, I feel like I should keep on it for so long. But uh, I think that that's the thing. Yeah, you did it. You got it. I got it. Now I can go eat mac and cheese and play a little bit of Stardew Valley, kiss my my little weird uh, video game husband. His name is Sebastian, and he likes to hang out indoors and play D and D. And sometimes he makes me a coffee or finds me a, a, a quartz because he's like, I had a nightmare and I walked around in the forest all night and I found you this. And I think that's beautiful. He sounds like a goth boy. He's a very goth boy. But it's also nice because he'll be like, oh, I just don't sleep good. It's not your fault. I love you. That's nice. Which is something I need in my life. I respect that. I'm probably going to go watch the second episode of May. Mage's Bride. Oh, Mage that's Bride. very good. I'm I'm three or four episodes in. Um, I thought maybe I wasn't gonna like it because the premise again. I was like, ah, okay. I kind of feel like when I started it, like maybe I'm missing something because I guess there was a movie or something. So I don't know if that kind of like introduced some of these characters because I feel like it kind of just drops you into it. And the episodes yeah. seem kind of long. So like the the format seems strange to me, but. Um, I got to about episode three or four, and I I really enjoy it, so maybe I'll get back into that. Thank you for inspiring me to get back into all these things. No problem. <laughs> it's like, I'm just, you know, living my best anime life. I'm just trying to, yeah. I also am probably going to watch the new episode of uh, Cardcaptor Clear Card. I know, I still need to watch the, the first new episode. Oh, it's so good. I've got a lot of stuff. Going I mean, on. like, nothing really happens, but you just, you get all the feelings. Oh, You're like, oh, a little yeah. gooey anime heart feelings. Yeah, uh, gooey anime I'm heart in feelings. middle school again. I'm in middle school in Hillary's upstairs room watching car captors. Is the, is the opening as good? Will any opening ever be as good as Catchy uh, Catch I Me? I mean, it's, it's very cute, but I'm not crazy about the song. Well, then forget it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want I want Catch You Catch Me to be dethroned because that just means it'll be an even better song. It won't take away from Catch You Catch Me. Ugh. I love Catch You Catch Me so much. It's so it's so good. It's my ringtone. Oh yeah, it is. It very good. All right. No no more funny business. We're just gonna That's it. tell tell the people what we have to tell them, and then we're we're going. I'm gonna eat mac and cheese, and you're gonna go watch anime. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, stay spook, Becca. Becca, stay spooky. Stay no wait wait for me. Stay one two three. Stay, stay spooky. spooky. Oh, we did it! I'm so proud. <sighs> I'm so excited. <laughs> Yay! Bye! Bye Bye-bye.